John, which is just almost at the very end of the New Testament. There's Revelation, Jude, and then there's 3 John, counting from the end back. It's a short letter. It's easy to miss, especially if your pages are stuck together. 3 John, let me pray, and then we'll read 3 John, verses 1 through 4. Our God, we pray that we would see your beauty, we would see true spiritual health through these verses in the name of Christ. Amen. So 3 John 1 through 4, hear now the word of God. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Summaries are helpful in life. They help us to boil down some important truths in just a few words. As a reason, we tell someone who wants to tell us something just to say it and to put it in a nutshell. Give me just the, just the facts. Boil it down. I think when it, it was when I was a seminary student, when my family knew that I was going to pursue pastoral ministry, of course, that meant that I was always then the one to pray at family gatherings and... My father uh, would say, uh, son, will you pray, but don't give us the whole creation story. <laughs> just, just pray for the food. All right. And I'm sure everyone heartily welcomed brief, succinct prayers. In a nutshell, and the word Trinity summarizes well for us the unity and the diversity of the being of God. The word incarnation likewise encapsulates the reality of the one divine person, and two natures. So if I asked you to summarize the Christian life in just three words, I would not be surprised if you quickly rattle off the words truth, love, joy. Of course, if I asked you to summarize the Christian message in just one word, well, you already have at the ready in your pocket your go-to Sunday school answer, Jesus. Yes, and you would definitely be right. The three-word answer, truth, love, and joy, and the one-word answer, Jesus, go well together, surely. It is Jesus, after all, who literally enfleshes truth, love, and joy. He is the Christian message. He is the Christian life. He is the Christ, and we follow him. And the Christian life is one of fullness of truth, love, and joy in both body and soul. Here we have the elder John who's packing a spiritual punch in so short a piece, this brief letter. In context, this letter is clearly a personal letter from an elder to a beloved Gaius. The elder is John, the same man who wrote First and Second John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. This is the disciple of Jesus who walked with the Lord, who talked with the Lord, who saw Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, dying, and who saw him 
risen. John writes a letter to his friend Gaius. But it isn't just a letter for his friend. It is for the whole church, which is why we have it. This guy, Gaius, as we'll see, is a portrait of the Christian life. There are other Gaiuses in the New Testament. Well, is any one of them this Gaius here? Most likely not, but we don't know who this Gaius is. It really doesn't matter too much. John knew him, and as we go through this letter, we'll get to know him as well as a beloved saint, as a dear child of God. And as we get to know Gaius, we'll see his character, his commitment to Christ and the church. We see that even here in John's commendatory words. No doubt Gaius is an imperfect picture, but he is still one that helps us to look further to Christ, as all Christians are to do in their ministry to one another, is to help them look to Christ. This letter is the shortest New Testament letter, if we're counting Greek words, and I know you are. And it is, interestingly, the only New Testament letter that does not mention Jesus by name. You might say then, well, let's just throw out 3 John because Jesus isn't mentioned. Well, then you should throw out the book of Esther as well because that does not have the word God in any of its chapters, and yet God is clearly present. But we don't have to throw it out. It's not even our prerogative to do that. We have it here. This is God's word. And clearly Jesus is throughout 3 John even if he's not mentioned by name, though verse 7 does mention the word name, which is an allusion to Jesus Christ. So there you have it. There is a concentrated emphasis in just these first four verses on three words. John lets his words be few, but these few words focus on a triad of truth, love, and joy. Four times in just four verses, he uses the word truth. True to form, John loves to write about the truth of the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three times he uses the word love. Joyfully, John truly writes of the theme of love throughout this brief letter. And twice he uses the word joy. Because true love and lovely truth result in joy, that's why he emphasizes joy in just already the first four verses. This triad of truth, love, and joy is intimately joined to our living Gaius need not wonder if his elder John loves him. He says it. I love you in truth. You're joined to the truth. Even Jesus Christ himself, as am I. So we have Christ in common, and we have the love of Christ in common. John even rejoices when some reported to him concerning Gaius' commitment to the truth, both to affirm the truth steadfastly and to act upon it by walking in the truth. It takes a disciple loved by Jesus to see the love of another Christian, and so to commend it. John knew the love of the Lord Jesus. In fact, when you read the Gospel of John, he speaks of himself as the one whom Jesus loved, as the beloved disciple. He names Gaius, how he has seen himself through the eyes of Christ love, as one who is dearly loved by Jesus. He knows that for himself. 
He knows that for Gaius. In truth, Gaius is a sinner. But the default term for Gaius is beloved, as it is for all of us who have been so loved by God that he has given his only begotten son for us. A rapper once reflected on his lustful relationship and asked, what's love got to do with it? Well, it's certainly not moving from one immoral relationship to another. And the woman you cheated on certainly thought that there was something more to the relationship than lust. But love's got everything to do with life. The Christian life is nothing without love. Love is not a secondhand emotion, as Tina Turner would have us believe. Nor is it a sweet, old-fashioned notion as she sings from a broken heart. It is patience promoting. It is kindness cultivating. It is truth triumphing. And with love, we endure all things. With love, we believe the best of our brothers. With love, we, we have the hope for the return of Christ and the reconciliation of all things. To tear out the tongues of angels and men. If you have love, you have everything. Put away prophecies. If you have the love of Christ, you have all that you need. If you devote your whole life to some loveless cause, you've wasted it all. But if you love the Lord with all that you are, you have everything, even if you have nothing. John emphasizes joy in this letter as well, even playing on the word, the meaning of Gaius. Gaius means gladness, means joy. He speaks here of glad affections, joy. Glad is a biblical emotion of gladness. The whole Bible is a book of joy. From the first Adam rejoicing in the Lord because of his bride Eve, to the second Adam, even Christ himself in Revelation rejoicing over his bride, the church. From beginning to end, the Bible is one of ecstatic joy, raptured delight. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Our obedience to God, if it is not moved by joy, is not genuine obedience. Sometimes parents want their children just to do the thing they ask them to do. And I admit, I, I don't care in one sense if they do it with a, a happy face or not. Just get it done. Just do it. But that's not God. He doesn't want us just to, you know, bide our living as long as we do it. Real obedience, from Old Testament to New, is joyful obedience. We read in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, blessings of obedience, but at the very end, he says, in verse 47 and 48, because you do not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, you will now serve your enemies. It wasn't bare conforming to the law that God commanded. Such a misunderstanding of God in the Old Testament. Some people think that God would just give us all this law and he just wanted us to, to keep it without any regard for, any, for our affections. It's heretical. 
divides up our own our own our own uh, makeup, being in the image of God. It's just of of our heart, our mind, our affections, our will. They're all supposed to work together. Certainly, you can't imagine Jesus telling his disciples to keep his commandments, whether they were joyful or not. Just get it done. No. A joyless Christian is not living as Christ has intended for him to live. After all, it was for the joy set before Christ that he endured the cross. And we will face trials of various kinds. And this joyful Christ says, I I want you, in all those trials, to remain constant with your joy. And so we should rejoice in all of life. Whatever happens, whatever God sends our way, joy ought to be unshakable because of our unshakable union to Christ, who is joy. The Christian life is truthful. It is loveful and joyful, seen in obedience. In December, a child asked her father what what he would like for Christmas. This daughter had come into some money, wanted to bless her father with a Christmas gift. What do you want for Christmas, Dad? And Dad said, a year of obedience. Just just obey in, in the next year. Does that sound wrong? Of course, that wasn't the answer that this child was looking for. Can I just get you a gift card? (laughs) This is John's heart for Gaius and for all of his spiritual children. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is is mentally recalling the many specific episodes of Gaius' joyful obedience. John regularly has opportunity to rejoice in the Lord as he hears these reports about how Gaius has been faithful, how Gaius receives traveling missionaries, as he has opportunity to show his commitment to truth and he remains firm. But too worried about coming across as promoting works righteousness, sometimes we downplay obedience. And as a result, we're not really... We're overly worried about being more like God. But what is obedience but conforming to Christ? What is obedience but imitating the love of your life? The Venerable Bede says, There is no greater joy than to know that those who have heard the gospel are now put into practice by the way in which they live. The sad reality of being a nominal Christian, that is, a Christian in name only, isn't reserved for our time alone. Calvin speaks of it when he writes a personal letter to a new convert. He says, I have heard that God of his infinite goodness has touched your heart so that you desire to be a Christian, not in name only, but in reality. The word Christian passes glibly, indeed, from the lips of all, but when it is required of us to humble ourselves beneath the gospel, which is the scepter by which Jesus Christ wills to reign over us, 
almost all shrink back. It's one thing to say you're a Christian. It's one thing to say you love the truth. It's one thing to say you are joyful. It's one thing to say that you love others. And we can say that we love the truth. We can put on happy faces. We can affirm our devotion to the Lord, dear ones. But the Lord brings about trials of various kinds to help us to see our truth commitment, our love commitment, our joy commitment. And this is why Gaius's obedience is especially refreshing because of the present conflict. We won't get into all the details here this evening, but we will soon see Gaius's devotion to God despite the antics of a diabolical Diotrephes, a really nasty man who wreaked havoc in the church where Gaius was. But as John begins, he notes Gaius's commitment to uphold the truth in both affirmation and joyful action. And this is what gives the whole church much joy. Dear ones, you should seek to please the elders with your joyful obedience. That's what Paul says. He says, let your elders keep watch over your souls with joy. Your elders receive much joy as we consider Christ's work in you and through you. Loved by God, you should seek to please one another with your joyful obedience. Paul again says, always rejoice and always make your reasonableness known to all. As you have concern for one another, this produces joy all around. Certainly the the Bible is not advocating that you please man to, um, to the avoidance of or the casting away of following Jesus. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes we care more about what someone says of us or thinks of us that we throw out obedience to Christ. That's not what the Bible is advocating at all. If elders, though, delight in, in obedient sheep, if we delight in the mutual encouragement that we receive from our joyful obedience, how much more does God, the good shepherd of the sheep, delight in us when we stand firm in the truth, we fight for joy and love one another and love him? Let us, beloved Christians, in both name and reality, then adorn the doctrine of God with our steadfast commitment to truth, love, and joy, come what may. Verse 2 says, Beloved, I I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So to be equipped to face conflict well, our whole self must prosper. We do not do well to either over-spiritualize this text or over-earthize, to coin another term in just the sermon, two terms I've coined John prays what all Christians should pray for one another, for whole person flourishing, for holistic spiritual health. We are body and soul beings, and we are not truly being spiritual when we neglect the body, when we say the body doesn't matter. As we all know all too well, we sin in the body. Sin was in the heart of Adam and Eve. And their eyes and hands did the sinful deed. 
they saw the fruit with their eyes. And with their ears, they listened to their own heart that was titillated by the snake. They grabbed the fruit with their hands and they bit into it with their mouths. We kid ourselves by thinking that if we just plucked out our eyes, we would not experience the lust of the eyes. But we equally kid ourselves if we think that our eyes have no role in the sinning. Being all heart doesn't work in the area of sin. It is both heart and hand. The hand does what the heart wants. And so we need to grow in the body. Because we sin in the body, we need to be sanctified in the body as well. Lamentations 3, the man of afflictions, flesh and skin, waste away. His trial has a real effect on his body. The same thing with the psalmist in Psalm 32. When we know that we should confess our sins, yet we keep silent, our bones waste away. Our groaning does not stop. Our strength is dried up. You know, when you are sitting on something that you know you should say, you're sitting on a sin that you know you should confess to God or to the one that you, one who's on earth that you sinned against, you know as, as long as you hold that in, it's eating you up. And your body is actually physically reacting to it. There's a reason we say that someone's wearing stress on their face. You can see it on their face. 1 Corinthians 6, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Your body is a temple of the Lord. Shall you join a member of the Lord's to what hates him? Dear ones, you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body, with your body. Now, it's natural to discuss, to mention the prosperity gospel, which really is a false gospel, an utter heresy, to be sure. And sometimes we condemn it, we speak against it with our words, and we ought to, but at the same time, we might give in to what we think is true in it. We fall prey to it when we so overemphasize the body that we reduce our faithfulness or God's love to earthly comforts, to blessings or pleasures. When it becomes the interpretive grid for our holiness or God's favor, we have erred grievously. This happens all the time with a struggling saint who sees various trials, maybe just one after another, and the person says, God has left me. Because if God was really with me, I would not be suffering. I would not be experiencing these difficulties. If God really was favorable to me, I would have all of the comforts that I think I need. I mentioned this false gospel because verse 2 is one of the proof texts for it. In what seemed like an innocent morning, Oral Roberts opened his copy of the Scriptures in search for a word from the Lord. And this 
was the first verse that his eyes fell upon. He then considered this more than providential, but a poignant word from the Spirit. This text then became the master key of his charismatic ministry. He misread the verse, thinking that it said that above all things, God desires our financial prosperity. But just try to convince pretty much any Christian of that. Try to use that thinking on most of the saints in the Bible or in church history who are not financially prosperous. Oh, some were, but many were not. But as the saying goes, a broken clock is twice, is right twice a day, isn't it? You certainly cannot accuse the prosperity gospel preachers of denying the importance of the body. They don't neglect the effect that God living may have on the body. Of course, they go overboard and say that there will be, there will be a godly effect on your body, in your life, if you just have enough faith. We would be better off to say there may be some benefit to your earthly situation. Physical health is not everything, to be sure, but it is certainly worth praying for. John's prayer is in keeping with the heart of his Savior. Jesus didn't save souls alone. He restored their bodies. Blindness, fevers, hunger, an outpouring of blood, lameness, muteness, and many other ailments besides. He who created and sustains our bodies cares for their flourishing. He cares for our bodily discipline. Paul says, godliness has value in every way. And he says bodily discipline has some value. We shouldn't take Paul's words, godliness has some value and say, or in bodily discipline has some value and say, bodily discipline has no value. It does have value. It's just godliness is much more valuable. We must consider how we are sinning in our bodies and how to cultivate bodily habits that promote the good of our bodies and the lives of one another. Our bodies are animated by the soul, by the spirit, and that's why John prays for Gaius to flourish not only in body but in soul as well. We sin in the soul. Sin originates in the soul of man, and the body does only what the soul directs it to do. Arrogance, bitterness, Hatred expressed bodily issue from the heart of man. And so we need to grow in the soul as well. We can be healthy in body, but sick in the soul. Do you know someone in that situation who seems to have it all together, but who is dead in his trespasses and sins? But we could be sick in the body, but healthy in the soul. We could have cancer and still be firmly fixed on our Savior. And so we pray that the Lord will shepherd our spirits such that through our body, though our bodies waste away, we are renewed in the inner man, and that our joy in Christ would remain. As we pray this prayer that John prays for Gaius, we pray for whole person health and reliance on the Christ who perfectly embodies the Christian life. To walk in the truth is to grow in Christ 
John's brief and for many throwaway prayer is, is anything but. It is a prayer of the hope of the resurrection. Do you see that? Do we not see the hope of the resurrection in this brief prayer of John's? His prayer for Gaius is one that every Christian can pray for himself and for his Christian siblings. That, that he, that, that we would have uh, that steadfastness of hope and fullness of life. The fullness of life of truth. Love and joy shall be realized in both body and soul in the beautiful, highly anticipated resurrection of bodies of glory. Truly, dear saints of God, you cannot do better than meditate on the reality of your resurrection. Surely, beloved of God, you do well to fix your spiritual eyes on the embodied and glorified Christ. The earthly groom knows in body and soul the ecstatic joy at beholding his bride as she walks down the aisle. It's enough for the man to shed tears of joy, of course. Our eternal groom of glory awaits his bride with eternal shouts of praise and joy. It is enough for the God-man to wipe away tears of sin, sorrow, and misery in body and soul. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that you have begun a work in us to transform us from one degree of glory to another. We pray that by your Spirit you would continue to do that work until it is completed, until we are presented holy and blameless before Christ our groom. In his name we pray. Amen.